leader in a local context, the privilege of being able to come and be with other leaders and to be a follower and to sit the teaching of other great teachers and to encourage each other over coffees and meals and to worship God together and to lift his name high. It's a great privilege. For me, I come from a massive family. And so every time we have big things like this, it feels like such rich family moments. And I love those family moment dynamics. On my dad's side, I'm the eldest of 19 grandchildren. On my mom's side, I'm somewhere in the middle of 19 grandchildren. So when we have family get-togethers, with my dad being one of six and my mom being one of five, we have family get-togethers. And there's a richness in these kinds of moments that I've come to appreciate as a spiritual family, broader, extended family dynamic. How many of you know that I have a difficult surname to pronounce, right? This is like my claim to fame in advance. And Brian, it's Brian, is he here? There's Brian. He's also Termosazen, but he's a hyphenated Termosazen. He's my dad's cousin. I don't know where they went wrong with their hyphenated vibe. But, but the Termosazen, it, it means, according to my understanding, it means little toilet under the stars. Stad Mors Hazen. Little toilet under the stars. And that's a rich heritage, but it's a crazy thing, Right? Now, Brian doesn't agree. They've done some research, and he says it means from the marsh. But that doesn't preach nearly as well as little toilet under the stars, right? But here's a crazy thing. Because on my dad's side, out of 19 grandchildren, we've had so many girls. If my cousin Luke doesn't have any girls, then I'm the only one taking the Termosazen name forward on my dad's lineage side. And how crazy is this? I have two daughters and a son. And my son happens to be adopted and he happens to be black. And so in one generation, if Luke, my cousin, doesn't have any boys, our Timosazen lineage will change races. Crazy. Hey? But a meaningful moment happened in my life about eight years ago. Whereas the oldest grandson, my grandparents called me to their house in George. And they sat me down and they brought out a big crate. It was a crate of family pictures that had been handed down. And family kind of memorabilia, like a cake scoop and weird things like that. But I spent hours with my grandparents as they scribed on the back of these pictures who these people were and what they had done and the things from their lives that we must not forget. It was a rich moment for me as a grandson, to be given those things. And I believe in our movement and our togetherness, we need to create room and opportunity for those amongst us that have rich ministry heritage to sit with us, younger leaders, and to pass on those things that we should never forget. And to contend and to call us to contend for those things that we must not forget and we must not kind of lose hold of. One of the best places in Scripture that we see this happening is where Paul is in prison in Rome, somewhere between uh, AD 67 and 68, and he writes the second letter to Timothy. This is a message, and we're going to open to Timothy chapter 3. This is a message from a father to a son. It's a message from a seasoned campaigner to a much younger leader, from a man facing death, Paul. He's in Rome and he's awaiting execution to a man with his life of ministry ahead of him. I'm not sure about you. Have you worked this out yet? When people who know they're going to die say things, we should listen. Because they don't mince their words. Say it like it is. And I'm not sure 
that we necessarily always give the, the credit due to those that have run ahead of us in the way that we as youngsters and particularly millennials and others tend to say we'll work it out for ourselves. But I want to call us again to a humility and a followership this morning that can listen to those that have run ahead. Let's listen to Paul together. We're going to bite off a, a chunky piece of scripture here and then we'll come back and digest little parts of it together. Three and from verse 10. You, Paul speaking to Tim, you, however, have followed my teaching, my conduct, my aim in life, my faith, my patience, my love, my steadfastness, my persecutions and suffering that happened to me at Antioch and Iconium and at Lystra, which persecutions I endured. Yet from them all the Lord rescued me. Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted, while evil people and pastors will go on from bad deceiving and being deceived. But as for you, continue in what you have learned and firmly believed, knowing from whom you have learned it and how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. All scripture is free up by profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correcting, training in righteousness. The sound man has disappeared. Training in righteousness that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. I charge Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead and by his appearing and his kingdom, preach the word, be ready in season and out of season, reprove, rebuke and exhort with complete patience and teaching. For the time is coming when we will not endure, when people will not endure sound teaching, but have itching ears. They will accumulate for themselves teachings to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off in mists. As for you, always be sober-minded, enduring, suffering, doing the work of an evangelist. Fulfill your ministry, for I am already being poured out as a drink offering, and the time of my departure has come. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Henceforth, there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day. Not only to me, but also to those who have loved his appearing. This is God's active and living word to us this morning. These are rich verses. I want to ask God that you would write these truths upon our hearts that you would cause them to live large in our minds, that we would be those who know what it means to contend as Paul contended for your gospel. I'm guessing that most of us recognize that this is a text that's very familiar to us, but there are some things in here that I really believe we should not forget. We should not forget. And so this morning, I want to speak about three things we shouldn't uh, forget, and then I want to circle back around to my main point, which is around 
followership out of this passage. But three things that we can hear Paul wanting to ask Timothy to contend for that I believe Christ, the head of the church, is calling us to contend for as we leave this place this morning. Don't forget these things. And the first one is this. Bank your entire life and ministry on the Word of God. Steve contended for this yesterday. So we're not going to spend a lot of time here. But listen to these words. These are sacred writings, Paul says. They are divinely appointed words, sacred and breathed out by God. The Word of God is able to make us. How many of us wants to, want to see the transforming power of God make us into something that we are not? He says His Word is able to do that. Leaders this morning, how many of us want to be profitable leaders? How many of us want to see uh, the kind of ground gained? How many of us want to see the, the, the mission advance? Scripture says that, uh, um, Paul says here in Scripture that Scripture is profitable to us. We must take our stand on it. We must build on it. We must cling to it. We have to keep it ever before us. And how many of us want to see our people complete and equipped. Complete and equipped. That's the prayer of every leader, right? God, won't you equip these people that you've called me to shepherd. Equip them in, in the works of service that they may actively be engaging in your mission and what you've called them to. Scripture is able to see us complete and equipped. The best thing we can do for the people we lead is teach them how to grapple with Scripture. Teach them how to love the Word of God. The statistics out of America tell us that no matter where you are in your journey of faith, no matter how new and young you are in your faith, no matter how old and mature you are in your faith, the number one thing that will continue to move you forward in your faith and in your maturity is every day getting into the Word of God. We have to teach our people that it's not Sunday to Sunday. It's not the odd Bible reading. It's day to day getting into the Word of God, letting its life transforming power change us, move us into all that God would have us be. And as leaders, I think there's a challenge for us here that we cannot, we cannot and we must not approach God's Word for what we can get out of it for our leadership. We have to primarily approach the Scriptures for what we hope they will do in us. They will do in us, firstly, as sons and daughters. Nigel Day-Lewis at a leadership conference many years ago, he said something similar to us, and, and he framed it in such poetic and, and descriptive words that it stuck with me. And regularly I find myself re-kind of counting this picture to myself as I come to the, to the Word of God. He says this, he says, We should never approach God's Word to sit over it in judgment. Rather, we approach God's Word and we come to sit under it to allow it to wash over us as the waterfall of God's truth and grace to us. Next time you approach your Word, are you coming for what you can get out for your leadership next appointment? Are you finding yourself approaching it as the waterfall of God's grace and truth to your life as a son and daughter? I wonder today, when I look at my life, when I was listening to Steve contend for this yesterday, I knew that my personal own shortcoming in this area is that I think I have an overdeveloped belief in my own problem-solving ability, in my own plan-making ability. And I've regularly had to find myself in that place of humility and repentance before the Lord, saying, God, I am sorry that I ran to my own leadership. 
I'm sorry that I ran to my own problem-solving ability and I did not run to your word first. The words of truth, the words of knowledge, the words of leadership and guidance that you would want to give. You've already poured it out in goodness. Sorry that I've led out of my own strength and understanding. Paul reminds Timothy, but as for you, continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed. Leaders that last are leaders that bank their lives and ministry on the word of God. The second thing that Paul in this passage doesn't want Timothy to forget, and I don't believe Christ, the head of the church, wants us to forget either is this. Paul charges him to be the leader that God has called him to be. Be the leader that God has called you to be. I believe Christ would want to say to us this morning, no one else. He starts the first paragraph of chapter 4 with the words, I charge you, and he ends that paragraph, fulfill your ministry. And he does a masterful work of coloring in that paragraph with reminders to Timothy of the most important elements of his call and his ministry as a leader. Things he must do, the person he must be, preach the word, reprove, rebuke, exhort, teach, do the work of an evangelist. This is what God has called you to do, Timothy. Do that. And things he needs to be reminded to be ready. Patience, sober-minded, enduring. Now, I know that for most of us, we'd look at this list and we'd say, these are things that we all need to be, right? These are all things that for every Christ follower and leader, God is calling us to, and this is the word of God. So it definitely applies to us. But my personal conviction is that Paul was actually speaking out of his unique relationship and knowledge of Timothy. And he was contending for him to be the leader that he had been called to be by God. And he speaks of two things. One, he speaks of his call. And two, he speaks to his insecurities. He speaks to those danger areas, those, those shortcoming areas. It's like a father saying, my son, remember what you must do. Remember who you must be. Timothy is being called out on some of his character flaws here. His calling What's Paul reminding him? Be an evangelist. Be a teacher, leader. That's who God has called you to be. It's not a comprehensive list of every leadership attribute that I believe God would want us to, to look to. He's speaking here to Timothy and he's calling him to be the leader God's calling him to be. But then if we take a closer look, possibly some of the character flaws that I believe Paul is calling him out on here and addressing is this. Firstly, is it possible that Timothy was struggling to see himself as a qualified and able leader. Old enough, maybe. Seems that Paul elsewhere had to speak to that. Had to tell him, don't let anyone look down on you because you are young. Paul is charging him to readiness. As you are, Timothy, you are ready to be used by God in the things of God. For the glory of God. And this morning, I believe that God would want to charge some people here this morning. As you are, you are ready to be used by God for the purpose of God and the glory of God. There is no qualifying. There is no uh, still maturing. God is not going to disqualify you. There is influence in your life. He has given you gifts. They are unique. And he is calling you to a readiness in this. I felt like that two days ago. Steve and Ryan came up to me and told me that I'm taking this session in for two and a half days. I very... Uh, tried my best to get out of it. And so last night he said to me, don't be a coward. 
And in that moment, he charged me. He charged me with a readiness to use what God has, has put inside and allow that to serve. Don't let you get in the way of you. Future church planter, be ready when your day comes. Future preacher, be ready when your day comes. Future spouse, be ready when your day comes. Future lead guy who's moving on to handing over, be ready when your day comes. Christ, the head of the church, today is charging us with readiness. As a younger guy, do you think it's possible that Timothy was a little impatient? Maybe with how long things were taking. Maybe with the a little bit of a disgruntlement that things weren't going his way as he kind of wonderfully and, and kind of youthfully dreamed it was all going to turn out. He'd been watching Paul's life and ministry and he was thinking, why am I not the next Paul yet? And so what do we think Paul charges him with? Be patient. This morning, I believe Christ, the head of the church, would want to say to some of the people in this room, be patient. Christ is charging us with a patience that is needed to walk in the ways of God. How many of us know his timing is not our timing? Rigby regularly speaks, age th- uh, 63, he regularly speaks about his life and ministry being a life and ministry of faithful plodding. Faithful plodding. Re- recently, two champions, Rigby and Tom Tampic, two kind of more senior champions in our togetherness. They saw each other after many years. And Rigby said to Tom, Tom, where have all the years gone? And Tom, wise as anything, shot back to me, said, into the lives of those we have loved and served. Guys, there is a patience in our step after step, in our brick upon brick, in our being faithful to Christ and his call that we need to settle upon our lives. Guys, I am not a patient leader. This does not come easy to me. But there is a charge from Scripture in Christ, the head of us, the head of the church to us today. Be patient. We have to keep reminding each other of this dynamic. We've all heard it. Marathon, not sprint. I loved Imanisi's picture of the guys running the 800. But to be honest, I felt like a lot of my life is an 800. It feels like, did you see the one guy? He still broke some record, but he almost died getting across that line in that video. (laughs) And sometimes we can feel like that as leaders, but we need the people around us to hold us and to say, be patient. Brick upon brick, step after step. And then what about being sober-minded? To the Afrikaners out there, I know that be sober is just wees nuchter. You know how I know this? Because when I was in Afrikaans boarding school and we got marched down to the, high, high school, I mean, to the church every week in our school bikies, and uh, one of my friends, the biggest drinker in the whole school, He got confirmed, and that Sunday they read two words to him as his verse at his confirmation. Vies nuchter. (laughs) Be sober. And, of course, all of us burst out laughing so loud that we got detention for a week, right? But be sober-minded. What is Paul after here? Do you think that it's possible that Paul was a little concerned that Timothy, under the circumstances, might become flustered or taken out? But the odd heresy or theological sideshow seems like so many people were, were be, being taken out. And so he contends for him and he calls him and he charges him to be sober-minded. R.C. Sproul Jr. says this. He says, a sober-minded person ought to contemplate 
the law of God. We need to meditate on these things. But there are two things a sober-minded person doesn't do. He doesn't practice experimental theology right in front of people. And he certainly doesn't veer from this bedrock position to that one, dragging his sheep behind him. Indeed, if he finds himself questioning some fundamentals, and here's the key, a sober-minded man will grow frightened rather than excited, will grow more careful rather than more reckless, and will encourage the faithful to look away, not to draw near. There's a responsibility that we have as leaders to contend for the Word of God, to be sober-minded around what we understand the teachings of Scripture to be, and to not allow these things to grab us and to take us. Paul charges Timothy, as Christ, the head of the church, charges you and I today, be sober-minded in these things. Steve said yesterday, we can't let the big issues that are facing our world fluster us. We can't let the pressures of culture punish us. We can't let the cries of our people plague us. We need to be sober-minded and stand upon God's word. And then lastly, Paul speaks to Timothy and he speaks of endurance. I don't think that actually he was kind of saying, you're not an enduring guy. I just think he was a leader who's been through some stuff. And he was saying, this is real. All of you need to endure. But Timothy, I'm saying it to you again. You will not be able to walk this road if it's not a a road of endurance that you kind of settle Settle in your life that this is going to be a road of endurance. And he calls him to endure. Maybe some today, there's a prophetic word that was brought, Claire brought during, didn't have a gap for it. She was saying that there's some people that are just feeling tired and they need to harbor, harbor in relationships, harbor in protection. There's an endurance. There's a a continuation that God is calling you to, but it's okay. It's okay when we need to harbor from time to time that we may continue the race. I wonder what God specifically would say to each of you when it came to charging you to fulfill your ministry as Paul did to Timothy here. What does fulfill your ministry look like? What, I mean, he's listed a few there, the things to do, the things to be. Maybe some of the others are pastor. You're called to pastor, maybe called to prophesy, to parent, to care, to give. The list can go on. Maybe some character flaws Christ would want to contend for in your life. I know for me, every time I think about this, God is calling me to be content and to be prayerful. Content to slow down, to not compare, to live in the moments. Be content to be prayerful. It's God's work, not mine. Paul was writing a letter to Ryan, he'd be writing those things. Because God is writing those things in my mind and heart regularly. What, what would Christ, the head of the church, want to write to you this morning when he charges you to do and be and to fulfill the ministry that God's called you? Maybe it's be joyful or worshipful, friendly. Maybe for some it's begin. Go and do that thing that God's put in your heart to do. This is one and only life and God's calling us to it. And then, thirdly, Paul here speaks to Timothy. Another thing that we mustn't forget is he calls him to run towards the prize. To be honest, when Imbonesia on the nights spoke about this prize dynamic, I was like, hey, but that's my point. Why do you steal my point? But I felt as I was going to take it out that God actually said, no, this is a moment for recognizing and appreciating and honor some people. 
that are living a little bit closer to that prize that lays in front of them. I want to ask Dave and Herma and Brian and Jenny, won't you guys stand where you are? Stand for a moment. Guys, Dave and Herma have served long and hard in the Jubilee story. Dave, how long have you been on eldership? Thirty-three years. Brian and Jenny, until very recently, led the Baptist church just next door to this building. Many of us in our togetherness know Brian and Jenny actually as the parents of Brad Anderson and Sean Anderson, who are both advances on eldership teams, leading charges in different spheres on the continent of Africa. These guys have just officially gone into Baptist retirement. We know what that means. It means you're now deployed to everyone instead of just one local congregation. But I feel like there's a moment for us. When we think of this prize, a good preacher, preacher, especially if you're Baptist, right? Don't stay standing, stay standing. A good Baptist preacher really would be able to sum this into three points and then put C's in the front of them. And when it comes to the prize, I feel like there's a prize ahead of you. In this scripture, it speaks about the crown of righteousness. It speaks about the community of the redeemed, all who have loved his appearing. What lays before you is a crown of righteousness, the community of the redeemed. And then we all know most famously the commendation of our God. Well done, good and faithful servants. Now I want to ask us, these guys are not retiring, they're being redeployed. There's a new season ahead of them. Uh, Dave has wonderfully helped us over the last six years to get that advanced church planting training course going. That's been fantastic. I want us to honor these guys and say thank you for contending faithfully, long and hard in the same direction, serving our King and serving this mission and our togetherness. Can you put your hands together? Let's honor these guys. There's a crown, there's a commendation from the Father, there's the community of the redeemed, and there's a clap from us, just to keep it Baptist. (laughs) Fourthly, and this is my main point, I want to draw attention to Paul's important call here to Timothy to continue to follow, to follow. 3 verse 14, but as for you, continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you have learned it. There's a continuation, there's a followership being spoken about here. Now, this is a leadership conference, right? And these are mainly leaders in the room. But I want to ask you this question for a moment. Are you primarily a leader or a follower? Which one are you? How many of you think you're primarily a leader? How many of you think you're primarily a follower? Great. Now, that we're in the hands thing. How many of you have ever been to a followership conference? How many of you have ever read a book on followership? How many of you regularly give thoughts to your followership? 
if I turn that around and ask you the leadership questions, we've all been to leadership conferences, we've all read the books, and we all regularly think about our leadership. But I believe there is a danger for us when we don't understand our primary identity as being followers before leaders. We are followers. Sharon this morning contended that we would be followers of the voice of God. We've contended over these days that we'd be followers of the word of God. We want to contend that we'd be followers of the spirit of God and Christ, the head of the church. We want to be followers. We need to be followers. What is the danger for us? One of the concerns in a leadership fixated culture that I have in kind of Christian community around the world is that we are subtly and not so subtly feeding the lie that leadership is the most important thing. And unfortunately, I think this causes us to cast followership unto a lesser light. If that's the case, there's some dangers in that. We put, we're calling, knowing or unknowingly, we can potentially be calling people to prioritize their leadership track and their leadership development more than their followership track and their followership development. This could be unwise for us to be embracing. Possibly we're creating unhelpful A-team and B-team dynamics between leaders and followers in the churches when we all are called to be followers. And possibly the greatest danger to us as leaders is that there are famous leaders in the world who are saying things like, it all rises and falls on leadership. We can be generous of spirit and we can say, we know what they're contending for. We know what they're not saying. But the truth is, if you've got a wiring, anything similar to mine with something of a responsibility box, what happens in that moment is over time and over the drip feeding of that, because those are mantras that I have used, it all rises and falls on leadership. It all rises and falls on leadership. We start to believe the lie that we do truly put that government upon our shoulders. And we cannot carry the weight. We do not have what it takes. Christ alone is head of the church. Christ alone has the shoulders that have proven worthy to take the full weight of the sin of the world upon them. He can carry the church like it's Sunday. Second thing I'm concerned about in this is the overdevelopment, in the overdevelopment kind of leadership culture. So I'm scared that if we don't have people that are actively working on their fellowship right from the beginning of their journey, when God calls them to discipleship, and even if they sense that there is a leadership call in their lives, if we don't have people actively and rightly developing their followership, we will not be creating the kinds of leaders that we want to have down the line. Leaders who've got an overdeveloped sense of self. Leaders who are overconfident in their own gifting. Guys, I am preaching to myself today. These are things that I need to hear in my heart. I've shared with you already my own shortcomings in this. I'm, intent, I'm inclined to lean on my own understanding. But God is saying that we've got to develop tracks and we've got to understand what it means to make people into true followers of Christ and His Word. Followers who are able to look to others. Often it's in followership that we learn how to serve. It's in fellowship that we keep humble. It's in fellowship that we enhance our ability to team with others. It's in fellowship that we develop our people's smarts and our EQ. It's in fellowship that ultimately we get to display the character of Christ who showed himself as a follower. I only do what I see the Father. 
is a followership, I believe, revolution that God wants to start in the church. Forbes Leadership in 2016 released an article called Why Followership is Now More Important Than Leadership. It's a secular article about the business place. And it says this. It says, a skilled follower helps a leader to shine. As the leader grows in skill, he or she is then able to help the followers to shine. And as they all grow in experience and skill, the interplay grows more productive and life-affirming. And he later says this. He says, followership is a lost art in our narcissistic leadership times. The truth is we, we want to see ourselves as separate and the kind of eldership and leadership, as PJ said, is, is not a worldly kind of leadership. We can't take management principles and business ideas and just kind of overlay those as, as what we should live in. But the reality is that we all do live in something of that productive world. And over time, we start to believe some of those lies that we see happening elsewhere, that when we this kind of leader, we should get this kind of treatment. Because that's right and appropriate for this kind of leader. And we functionally and sometimes unknowingly can undermine a followership that God would call us to. We are way more called to be followers than leaders. Let's follow Christ, the head of the church. You, however, you have followed my teaching, my conduct, my aim in life, my faith, my patience, my love, my steadfastness, my persecutions, and my sufferings. I hope that it will be said of us that we too can be those who know what it means to follow. When it comes to teaching, I want to follow the teachers amongst us here in our ranks. Steve, every single time you have stood up over the last few days, something in my heart has gone, I can follow that guy. A true teacher contending for us to wrestle. Lex, PJ, Taryn, Greg, others that contend for us to grapple with the scriptures in the right kind of ways. That's a followership dynamic that we can give ourselves, in our to, give ourselves to in our togetherness. When it comes to conduct, there's so many that we can follow in so many different ways. Those around us. Pete and Jan, no longer with us, I don't think. Oh, there they are at the back. Guys, when I grow up bigger, I want to be like you. Honestly, the way that you guys have in your conduct, in everything that you have been through, shown an example to us, I want to subscribe my followership of conduct into to walking in your footsteps, to being able to grapple with difficulty and suffering and challenge like you have done. Your conduct has been exemplary to us. There's another couple in the room today, Anton Sue Ryan. These guys are in their 60s, their kids are out of school, out of home, they've got kids of their own. But these guys have been, in their conduct, exemplary to us. They serve on our leadership team, but Kate and I, a couple of, um, I don't know how long ago it was, a couple of years ago, said to them, guys, we love what we're seeing in your marriage. And when we get to the 60 plus age of life, we want to be just like you guys. Will you meet with us once a month and share your stories? And let the conduct of your marriage life overflow and drift feed into our lives. And so we do that as a couple. We pour in our lives. They help us with our stuff. But we look to their example. In their conduct, they have shown themselves exemplary. And we submit ourselves as followers to their conduct. What about when it comes to an aim in life? Paul speaks about an aim of life. He speaks about being poured out as a drink offering. I think we could say this of most people in ministry. 
There's a pouring out that happens. There's a dynamic that happens. But PJ and Ash, as you guys have gone from Zim to Joburg, from Joburg to DC, there is an aim, a singularity of the aim of your life that has given up home, that has moved family, that has given up friendships. And you guys have shown that aim in life to be true in your lives. And I think that you guys have blazed a path for others to follow. And when I think of Sheshi and Trudy, and when I think of Bones and Tash, and when I think of Blake and Rachel, you guys have led us. There's a followership of contending that our one and only aim in life would be to give ourselves to the fullness of the call of God on our lives. You guys have broken ground for us. And we follow you gladly. What about when it comes to faith? So many that I would love to follow in this area. Gareth, Robert, Craig, Masala. Guys, may we follow you as you contend for this space of one new man in Christ. And as you shape church in a way that expresses that wonderfully and beautifully and have faith for a better day. May we follow you in your faith, Re Reconciliation Road Church, as you for eight years have put brick upon brick to see a venue built and shown a faith for a better day. What about patience? Thea, man, you're a hero on the West Coast. I've been to that venue of your guys. I mean, it's, it's renovation and extension after renovation and extension. There's been a patience and a growing there's been a contending, there's been a faithfulness, but there's been a patience that we've honored. And often it's the unsung heroes on the fringes that teach us these lessons like people in the cities cannot learn. May we be followers in this. What about when it comes to love? We speak about a brotherhood and a sisterhood. Harry and Wentz, Honor and Claire. You guys are the monsters of generosity and hospitality and love in our togetherness. We want to follow you. I want something of what you guys have to rub off on my leadership and my life. There is a beauty in the way that you guys extend yourselves and learn names and go beyond your own comfort zones to be hospitable and generous and show a brotherly love that we would desire to be at the heart of all that we do as a movement. Always hate this part because this is where I can't actually see through the watery eyes what's happening on the paper. And then Paul, he ends with this. He ends with steadfastness, persecution, and suffering. And I thought we could actually do a little competition if we wanted to amongst our churches around some of these things. But we're actually not wanting anyone to be the front runners in this, are we? But we know that scripture says we're all going to experience it. We're all going to experience persecution and suffering. And it's going to need to call forth a steadfastness in us. And we've spoken to this over the days. But each one of us will have something to learn from the struggles and the suffering and the persecution of others in this room. We've all got our stories. And we can all learn from each other. We can all follow. You'll remember last year, Common Ground. We went through most probably the darkest day in our church's history, 21 years old. And in September last year, we had to arrest one of our own youth leaders because we found out that he was a cyber predator. We took a battering from the press. And there was lots of pastoral pressure and pastoral concern. Those were long days and long nights. We took a lot of 
heat from external kind of investigations and trying to understand what was going on. God carried us through those days. And a giant in the faith, Pete Retief. Sorry, not Pete Retief. Frank Retief, sorry. Very different. Very different. Frank Retief. Not Pete. Definitely not Pete. Frank Retief was the leader of St. James Church in 1993 when they experienced that massacre at their church in the evening. And he's, he's kind of in a retirement stage of life, but he came and sat down with us nine young congregation leaders. And he didn't tell his story by way of saying, you haven't seen anything yet. He told his story to us in a way that built such faith in the room. Because he said, you can look at my story and feel like your story is this, but I look at the many stories of things happening in the church around the world. And there's a humility that comes upon me. And yet, there's an understanding of the sovereign hand of God being at work that we can still praise and honor and celebrate. Learn the lessons as you go through these seasons of persecution and suffering and contend as faithful ones. It was a glorious moment. He's a statesman in the kingdom, and we learned so much from him. In that moment, we became true followers, true followers of his example, true followers of Christ, the head of the church, who endured all suffering on our behalf. But as for you, continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed, knowing from who you've learned it. I would hate for us to be leaders who look like the big gym bunny guy who forgot to do legs day. <laughs> How many of us have seen that guy, right? I mean, he is huge. He's huge up here and he walks into the room. All you see is shoulders and neck. And I mean, there are biceps popping underneath it. And then you look at his, often they wear those like baggy kind of things. Why? Because when he takes them off, there's like these two little matchsticks. He forgot to do leg day. And I feel like leaders who only focus on doing leadership stuff and don't actually develop the legs of followership to slip in behind some of the other leaders that have contended for these things and that are exemplary in these areas. The danger for us is that we can be Jim Bunny guy. And everyone is impressed by our muscles, but they're laughing at our legs. <laughs> I don't want to be that kind of leader. Like Paul says here, we have a fight to fight. We have a race to run. We have a faith to keep. Advanced churches in Africa, can we bank our lives and ministries on the word of God? Can we be the leaders that God has called us uniquely to be no one else? Can we run towards the price with great endurance? And can we be a people who are followers before we are leaders? May we never give up. May we never give in. May we never let go. May we be leaders that last. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we are so grateful to you that you are the true uh, leader and you're the only one who's the true leader, that we can be sons and daughters just like Christ and that we can exemplify followership to the people that we lead. Servant leaders are true followers. God, won't you make us servant leaders? We don't want to deny any of the leadership call that you put on our lives, but Father, we recognize that that is only kind of foundationally ungirded by our first followership of you and of your word and of your voice. 
we ask God that you would deposit a desire in us to be followers. May we be those who get to learn from other movements and, and other faith, uh, uh, denominational kind of streams in the world. May we be those who get to learn from those who have gone ahead of us and contended in different areas. May we not be too proud, proud to find ourselves as the ones doing all the speaking and none of the listening. Won't you give us this followership grace? the movement we pray. Amen. Amen.